Welcome to Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yisung Liu. Every episode of the show, we'll be discussing a topic that affects the lives of millennials, the generation that would rather go skydiving than answer the phone. For our second episode, I wanted to take a look at online arguments. After all, they're not hard to find right now. Whether you're looking at what's trending on Twitter or a comment section on Reddit, or the Facebook page of an uncle who posts too much about being a free thinker, polarized opinions seem to be commonplace in online discourse. To tackle this topic, we have some great guests on this episode. First, we'll be joined by author, podcast host, and TV writer Dana Schwartz to discuss how a tweet about South Park went out of hand. Then, writer and host of the podcast, Yo! Is This Racist? Andrew T. reveals his philosophy on responding to bad takes and explains why people can pay $100 to be unblocked by him on Twitter. Lastly, in our third act, I'll be taking a deep dive into the nature of virtual arguments and trying to answer the question, is it possible to change someone's opinion online? Let's get into it. Act 1. Attention. Invited and uninvited. Dana Schwartz is the host of the podcast Noble Blood, as well as an accomplished TV and entertainment writer. Not only that, but when it comes to this week's topic, I want to say that Dana is good at Twitter. Not only do her tweets do well among her 194,000 followers, but screenshots of her tweets will also regularly appear on the front page of Reddit. The fact that she reaches such a wide audience is evidence of the strong voice and relatability in her writing, which of course has played a part in the success of her career. In this conversation, we begin with the Twitter account Guy in Your MFA, which Dana created in 2014. It's a parody of an obnoxious guy in your writing master's program, and it quickly went viral. We also get into discussions about reply guys and being confrontational online versus in real life. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Dana Schwartz. I want to start by reading one of my favorite tweets you wrote from the guy in your MFA account. I'm already embarrassed. (laughs) Um, And it's, quote, I know I'm not supposed to talk while my piece is being workshop, but I'm just going to chime in real quick to tell you all why you're wrong. (laughs) This was in 2014. I'm so curious. What made you want to start this account? Okay, so here's the thing. Like you said, it's like this is from 2014. It feels like this was like a lifetime ago. I was a college senior at this time, uh, Mm -hmm. and I was pre-med, and like I had already like gotten through orgo, and I worked in labs, and I was like ready to, you know, go be a doctor, but I was very like... (laughs) scared in that I I didn't want to be a doctor and I secretly wanted to be a writer, but I was very intimidated by like the writers, like the quote unquote writers on my college campus. And so I feel like I started this account like partly out of like insecurity and frustration because I was like still taking like writing classes and writing workshops, like the insecurity and frustration of like those self-confident writers who seem to have all the confidence in the world when I had absolutely none sure um that that makes a lot of sense i even as an undergrad i had brushings with like mfa writers and it always seemed like they wore cool hats and knew what they yeah. were doing they smoked sometimes that was very cool unless you're a kid listening to this not cool right or my parents for yeah. that matter um, i actually i never got an mfa that was just like my i mean i took writing workshop classes but like my platonic ideal of like what a serious writer was was like an mfa guy and so that was Mm -hmm. why it became like the the archetype of the the infamous twitter account yeah it's this awesome satire of an extremely obnoxious guy but but once it started gaining popularity which it did do you remember how people responded to it yeah it was like very positively and so that's why i feel like it gave me this confidence boost it was like it was during this brief window, if 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 you can hearken back to 2014, when like Twitter felt a little less insufferable than it is now, and yeah. like there were still like jokey accounts. So I feel like I just like got in at the tail end of that, and it just like it got noticed by people who I thought at the time were like part of the big leagues, and so that kind of gave me the confidence boost to be like, oh, maybe I can like try to be a writer because I never thought that I was like that funny before or like that. Hmm like good enough to do it as a career Mm -hmm. and yeah it gave me that boost for sure it seems like a much more innocent time thinking about it now do you were there any signs of friction at the time was there anyone like adversely responding to it or was it for the most part it was just hey keep on doing what you're doing i would say it twitter was still like maybe and now i'm like over glorifying but it did seem like there was less of like a meanness to Twitter sort of Mm -hmm. at the time where like, 
I will say like that the negative responses I got was maybe from like cool people who's like, hey, this is sort of like a one joke thing. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's like the point of it. Uh, sure. And like a few people being like, oh, why is she just making fun of guys? And I'm like, well, I'm making fun of like they're pretentious girls too. Just like a few more a pretentious guy is sort of the archetype of it. I will say the response was pretty positive, but I'll also say like I kind of knew like I retired that account for like years. Like I kind of knew that it, the, the joke would run thin and it also feels almost like um like precious not precious like what's the word where it's like it's almost sweet that like that was the thing that i like took issue mm. with at the time like right like mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. isn't it like kind of wholesome that like when i was a senior in college I, my like main frustration was like pretentious literary bros like sure i find that a little like wholesome like now the world has gone to full shit and there are Nazis, like this is like, it <laughs> feels like a very pre-Trump inter- use of the internet to me. It's like a yeah. time capsule. It would be basically as if I complained about, oh, I have leftover dollars on my meal yeah. plan. Like, yeah, it's, it's exactly. Cute. It's like quaint. It's like a little quaint, like college complaint. And so that's why I, I look back at it with such fondness that I'm like, what an innocent time. Well, since then, it eventually led to a book deal. But but during that time, you've also had a successful career as an entertainment writer. And you've written about yeah. some like pretty newsworthy topics, Jared Kushner, Meghan Markle, <laughs> Louis C.K. Yeah. I was reading some of these articles preparing for this, and I made the mistake of scrolling down to the comments. Oh, no. And, and so I was wondering, like, how do you prepare yourself before releasing something that you know is going to invite that negative argumentative uh, attention? I guess my main concern always is that the right people will get mad at it. Like, mm. if awful sexist, racist people get mad at it, then I'm like, that's okay. And it mm-hmm. still viscerally affects you. Mm-hmm. And like on a, this fight or flight level, like even though I'm I'm like, okay, I know these are shitty people getting mad at me, but like you still have this like weird, like my heart clenches up just anytime anyone's mad at you online or sends you a really visceral threat or message, even if you tell yourself like, this is like a shitty person in a basement somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I think... Um, unfortunately like practice you kind of get numb to it Mm -hmm. but then you know i also then get sensitive to like if a critique comes from someone who i think is like right or has a good point that i didn't see before like that's when i feel really bad or just want to like listen and learn and and do better and so i feel like i've uh dealt with critiques across the spectrum and they all Mm -hmm. sting in their own ways and i'm still very bad at it and I want everyone to like me always. And the thought of a single person not liking me uh, makes me stay up at night. <laughs> yes, I I can empathize with that greatly. Do you, in spite of all that, and I'm asking because I do this, if you know people are talking about you, do you seek out Oh my what God, yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm a monster. Like I've searched, Twitter searched <laughs> my own name all the time. And like, I'll even go to like people's tweets who I'm like, who I think will subtweet me just to see. Right. It's like- when a tooth hurts and you have to press your tongue against the tooth just to yeah. see if it still hurts. Oh, I'm a masochist. And I really do feel like my goal for the new year and for the rest of my life, the Jewish new year and for the rest of my <laughs> life is uh, to care less what people think and just be like happy in my life in the real world where I'm like, I have two great cats and a partner that loves me and a good job. Like, and a roof over my head, you know, like to be, to learn how to be satisfied with my life and not care what's happening on the internet. Definitely. So so there are these situations where like, you know, in advance and you can kind of brace yourself. Yeah. But then I want to shift to when it's unexpected. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, my God. In, in 2020, you tweeted <laughs> observation about the show South Park. The tweet was, if you don't mind. Yeah. In retrospect, it seems impossible to overstate the cultural damage done by South Park the show that portrayed earnestness as the only sin and taught that mockery is the ultimate inoculation against all criticism. Yeah, I was just like being annoyed. I I just, I was fundamentally annoyed at those like South Park bros, like the two guys who make South Park, Mm -hmm. who are very funny. Like I love Book of Mormon, but like they're conservatives. They Mm. don't like change and they um, have sort of created this like culture on people that like, think it's cool not to care and to be able to criticize everything. And I think that's just like a destructive way to live life. And kind of the South Park ethos has like informed online trolling for mm-hmm, a long time. Mm-hmm. But I just like put that tweet out being like, here's an observation I, Dana Schwartz, have about a TV show. And then like people went insane and mm-hmm. were like, 
she's coming for South Park, like trying to cancel South Park. And like the harassment I got was like, yeah, genuinely like scary. Like people would like sure. were emailing like my family and were like Jesus. emailing me like threats, like really violent threats and like anti-Semitic threats, like to the point where I was like, okay, this is like kind of scary. Like I thought I was going to get doxxed. Like to some degree I got like actual threats, like, mm-hmm. Where I'm like, oh my God, I just tweeted an opinion I had about a TV show to my own personal Twitter account. And it like really interfered with my life for a while. Like, I guess those, the trolls really succeeded in like making my life uncomfortable. If that was what they wanted to do, they would like make long YouTube videos about me. It was just like, I'm like, I'm no one. I don't have any power over these decisions. Why do you care so much what I think? It, it it felt to me like an interesting tweet that someone would shoot off while they're having their morning coffee. Yeah, like, it was just oh. like a thought. And and it's so funny because you even mentioned this in your Washington Post article detailing the whole saga that you didn't even say that you didn't like the show. No, like there's good episodes. And also like the show I think also has sort of in a self-aware way like commented on that, like commented mm-hmm. on the way that it sort of made being neutral the most morally superior position. And, like, I kind of thought I was stating the obvious, but just in, like, the exaggerated way that everyone does on Twitter. Yeah. But, no, it was wild. It was, like, I had to, you know, definitely like get, tell someone to change my Twitter password and just get off because there was the backlash, and then there were, like, the really vicious trolls. And then I would say there's, like, the people from the other side who, like, saw this whole thing happen and then are like, oh, well, she was asking for it. You know, I was like... Jeez. Not like that sounds like... But you know what I mean? Like, oh, right. you said a provocative opinion, and here you go. And it's like, I don't think anyone should ever be getting, like, death threats to their personal email. Yeah. Before the before the changing of the Twitter password, just to give a sense of, like, the scale of the response... Yeah. Was it a situation where you could just mute the people that were responding to you? I definitely like tried, but it's hard. It's hard to keep up with all of that. They have like a lot of cretins underneath the, those rocks. Yeah. Uh, you just, I found that like the internet sometimes randomly chooses a discourse for the day and you mm-hmm. just don't want to be involved in that in any way. <laughs> like, even if you're like on the right side, then people come up with their angles and their takes, and like you're just like this is not going to be good in any capacity. Yeah. All you can do is like kind of mitigate it, and I my, the way I decided to do that was like I wrote like an op-ed for the Washington Post, just being like, okay, this is just like my side of what happened. This is like insane, sure. just to sort of get on the record with that, and then I just like probably got off Twitter for a few days and forced someone not to let me back on. Smart. I'm so curious as a general philosophy, do you believe that, you know, in response to people trolling in bad faith or being disingenuous, do you believe it's better to ignore them or to call them out? I think probably for your own mental wellness, it's better to ignore. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I can't resist. Like sometimes I just want to like poke a bear a little bit and yeah. I'll respond and try to shame someone. Yes. But I yeah. also think my life has fundamentally got better in the past like two years or so in which I've like kind of made the conscious decision to stop trying to like always have a political hot take or like uh-huh. a cultural hot take on Twitter where it's it's like a game where the prize is garbage. Like, you you know what I mean? You could sort of, if you spend a, a ton of time online, yeah. I think people get caught up in this thing where it's like you always have to have a take on whatever's happening or a hot take or a funny take. And it reached the point where I was like, why am I doing that? Like, I want to echo and amplify voices of people that know more than I do. But like, more often than not, anything where I'm any issue where I'm like, ah, I, Dana Schwartz, know best on this. <laughs> like, I don't. And if I were, it's just if I, if I pretended mm. to, it was just that arrogance, right? Of like, mm. oh, because I have a lot of followers, but I better speak up on this. The people are waiting to hear Dana's take on the fall of Afghanistan. Right, right. And it's like, they're not. I want to amplify the voices of the people who know better. But like, I'm tweeting largely to a lot of followers who probably politically agree with me. Mm-hmm. And so I realizing that I this is so stating the obvious, but realizing that I didn't need to get caught up in like having a take for everything and that I could just like be quiet for a second. 
has made mm -hmm. my life so much fundamentally more happy. That's a very wise conclusion because it can be very confusing. Yeah. As one, you're a writer, but two, do you believe that Twitter rewards just takes like oh, just yeah. emotional because I feel like that's that's what dredges up uh, that's what inspires people to to stay on the website. I feel like the thing that Twitter wants is an inflammatory take mm -hmm. that then people can respond to and then there can be a response to the response to yeah. like keep the cycle going and going. Yeah. Um and if you're caught in the center of that, there's not a lot of reward for you. I mean, you can get more Twitter followers, mm -hmm. which then amplifies the cycle more. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's not financially lucrative, particularly, yeah. necessarily. It's not creatively lucrative. It's it's bad, at least for me, for your mental health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It distracts from, like, real-life friendships. And I think it also makes you um, very arrogant and like self-centered. Like it gives you an inflated self of sense importance. Right. I feel like for sure when I was like 22 and I thought guy in your MFA was like hot shit. Like I think I was a little nightmare. Mm. I mean, in like the, the overconfident way all 22 year olds are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But also I was like, oh, I have all these Twitter followers as if yeah. that meant anything. I also feel like back then no one and, and maybe even now it's hard to to tell the value of of that of, yeah. of clout in any sense of the word un unless uh, unless you've made it to like a logan logan paul level oh, um, yeah i i want to uh just a just a quick aside of a positive step outside uh you host a podcast called noble blood you, you're yeah. also a writer of several books and could you talk about like the necessity but also the the positiveness of just interacting with the people and actually having discourse rare or otherwise yeah i think twitter has fundamentally served me a lot and so it would be disingenuous to be like oh twitter's only bad because it's given me you know i've made friends and it's given me an audience and i've gotten like noticed through it mm -hmm. but i also don't feel like um at a certain point it's diminishing returns maybe mm -hmm. that's a more accurate way to frame it um and i think that the best things that have come out of the internet aren't or for me haven't been my like hot takes or like funny tweets it's like the things that i actually put like research and work into mm -hmm. you know like my book coming out is a novel and it you know is one that i worked hard on and my podcast noble blood is one that's like fully researched and i think like i feel like i'm putting something hopefully a value out into the world and so twitter ha has really helped me reach a point where i can do that and that's yeah. what i'm really grateful to it for but beyond that, I think, like, as a swirling vortex, it ultimately causes a lot of destruction. And it's like, you need to use it to get what you can out of it and then mitigate the risk and damage. I feel I am going in circles and I feel like I, I sound like I'm all over the place because I think I don't my head is, you know, I don't. I'm fully addicted to Twitter still, so I don't have, like, some zen take on it, but I'm just spouting off my thoughts and feelings in the moment. It, it could also be uh, we're at the helm of a podcast host who has only done one one episode prior to this. Um, <laughs> no, I, I love it. This is great. <laughs> I, I also want to ask, because I, I think my parents are going to listen to this, and I feel like uh, maybe to, to better define some things, Can could you describe what a reply guy is oh yeah well also hi uh yuzong's parents you Hello. produced a lovely son thank you um a reply guy is like a guy who thinks he's doing a good thing like he's not like a troll mm -hmm. he's not trying to be mean or get a bad response but he thinks that his he thinks that every tweet is an invitation for his conversation right sorry I'm drinking LaCroix and I'm the whitest person in the world and it like tickles my nose and it's like, <laughs> it, it's spicy to me is how white I am. Uh, no, so a reply guy <laughs> is the type of guy who thinks that every tweet, especially a tweet by a woman, is an mm. invitation for his conversation, that you mm. posed it directly to him and he wants to reply. Like you'll post a picture of ice cream and he'll be like, ooh, yum. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you're a stranger. I don't need that. Right. And then there are different, I think, flavors of reply guys, some who only do like compliments and then some that are trying to like correct you or continue mm. the conversation in a way that's very obvious or explain mm. the joke. Like some, a flavor of, of a reply guy, I feel like is one who will explain the joke mm -hmm. back to you. And yes. you're like, yeah, 
I know. That's literally the joke. I ask because even just this past week, as I was scrolling through Twitter trying to find things to talk about, you you tweeted out jokingly about the podcast Noble Blood. How did I accidentally get a job where I forced myself to write a 20-page history term paper twice a month? Yeah. Relatable. Someone replied to this with LOL, quote, job. Could you... So I, I so this is like a drop in the yeah. bucket, a uh, citation for a definition of, of what a reply guy is. I'm so curious. What do you think? What do you, what do you think a person is searching for when tweeting something like this? Is it attention? Is it to feel close to you? I think in that case, he's someone who doesn't really see me as a real person. He sees me mm-hmm. sort of as this like archetype, like a stereotype of like a rich white kid podcaster. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, oh, her job is podcasting. When it's like. Yeah, I know that sounds, you know, if you came here in a spaceship from 2006, it sounds crazy that some people make livings podcasting. But, like, really all I'm doing is, you know, whether it's, like, radio or media, like, whatever it is, like, I'm just putting interesting stories from history out into the world. And podcasting is sort of the de facto way to do that nowadays. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's, like, he sees me as a symbol of a thing Mm -hmm. that maybe is a problem to him, but doesn't really necessarily relate to like who I am as a person. Mm. And so he wants to like feel smug and put me down mm. to show that he's smarter than these podcasters. Right. I want to ask because I, I feel like people will post online in a desire to be like, well, I want to be liked by as many people as possible. Yeah. Uh, but with parasocial relationships, it's like, well, you want to invite people in to hopefully like what you're putting out. But, yeah. but, it's also straddling this awkward line of, but not too close. Could you yeah. talk about your experience with, you know, putting a lot of yourself on the internet and people uh, feeling like they know you and, and thus interacting with you? Absolutely. I do think it's been a learning experience for me because in my early 20s, I put a lot of myself out there, uh, like emotionally and physically, just like trying to get people to notice me and to like me. And I feel like as I've gotten older, I've realized that that's not. It's validating in the short term, but not Mm -hmm. really validating in the long term. And I think my way of sort of self-protecting myself from that judgment is to start putting more work out there that's less personal. Like Mm -hmm. Noble Blood, I put a lot of myself into it, but it's researched and scripted. It's not... Mm -hmm this is Dana Schwartz as a person talking about herself and her life. Like, it's not the right. Dana Schwartz therapy hour. And, like, I'm writing novels that are fictional. And, again, they're very personal to me, but they're under the, the veil of fiction. And I think that that's a way for myself of realizing, like, I can use the art that I make. That seems like a very lofty word, but the, the content that I make uh, – as a way to share myself while keeping who I actually am, you know, for my friends and loved ones and family. Yeah. Like that, it's still something I'm, I'm dealing with that, like feeling fulfilled enough with my you know, partner and family and friends that I don't need the validation of a lot of likes on the internet. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for someone who, despite putting the Twitter app in a folder within a folder, still checks yeah. it very regularly? Oh, uh, I my only advice, honestly, is the self control app on my Mac, mm-hmm. which yeah. I use when I work and I keep my phone in the other room, and also uh, telling your friend just to change your password when you have something important to do. It's the only thing that ever works for me. Yeah, because I find ways. I'll like delete the app and then I'll just go on Safari and like log mm-hmm. in on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a really addictive personality type. And uh, the little dopamine rush of a Skinner box on Twitter is exactly hits that spot in my brain. And that's a real problem. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to ask just to just to bring it back to to the confrontation. Are you a confrontational person in real life? Oh, my God. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm so scared of confrontation. I think I'm I can be like assertive if I'm like asking for something I want or like you know, talking to like a person at my door, like if I need something or if I need help from a person at a, at a store or something, like I'm not scared of like talking to strangers, but the thought of someone not liking me and dealing with that or like causing drama or like, or like, you know, insulting someone makes my blood run fundamentally cold. Like I think mm-hmm. even sometimes on Twitter, I have a persona that's like a little more like 
flirtatious or aggressive than I am in real life, which is uh, deeply concerned with how everyone sees me. (laughs) That was our interview with Dana Schwartz. You can listen to her podcast, Noble Blood, wherever you get your podcasts, or find her on Twitter at Dana Schwartz with three Zs. Her new book, Anatomy, A Love Story, is available for pre-order now. Stick around. We'll be right back. Act two. Every argument has its audience. Andrew T is the host of the podcast Yo Is This Racist and was a writer for the show Mixed-ish on ABC. In our conversation, I ask Andrew what it's like hosting a comedy show that touches on social political issues, what it's like in terms of backlash, what his Twitter philosophy is, and lastly, we talk about his experience engaging with bigots online and who that interaction is really for. Also, you'll hear it. We were joking around before the interview, and when we usually talk, it's in a comedy setting. So I think we were both caught off guard by the change in tone at the start. Anyway, please enjoy our conversation with Andrew T. You've said before that Yo, Is This Racist was inspired by a conversation with a coworker about whether or not it was racist for Yosemite Sam to say cotton picking in his list of insults. I feel like a lot of people of color have had some variation of this conversation, but not necessarily mm-hmm. everyone would start a blog about it. What mm-hmm. audience were you hoping to reach with it at the start? Oh, God. Damn, you song. I didn't realize this is where um, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really think there was an audience. I did. I, mm. I literally only started Yo, Is This Racist on Tumblr because they had um, like, I think, I mean, it's, it's basically now it's, you have to go through Tumblr to get to it. Cause we've used the URL for um, podcast stuff now, suboptimalpods.com and redirects to doesn't matter. Um, but uh, I'm just getting a little, <laughs> little disgusting promo in right mm-hmm. at the top. Um, no, um, I, and, and I like the, the blog was configured with literally the Tumblr default, everything, mm. you know, it was just, so if Tumblr didn't exist in a way that would have let me make this website, um, in under 20 seconds where you could ha- ask anonymous questions, it wouldn't exist. Right. I just was like, fuck it. I don't know. This is easy to do. So I will do it. And then I think even the day it started, um, a couple like Gawker people that I knew like had like tweeted about it. Um, and it just really helped, you know, uh, throwing me in way over my head, but mm-hmm. it was just like, I think as far as like people of color go, it is that thing of like, even even someone with no particular expertise um, mm-hmm. has a different lived experience. And like the 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 reason like is cotton picking a <laughs> slur or, or not a slur, but it's like a thing mm-hmm. that is something that I think someone like me would be more apt to just like pick up on is just that like baseline of like not trusting history and cartoons that mm-hmm. I think like you you can acquire just from not being white in America in the 20th century, 21st yeah. century, I guess. So yeah, it, it was a thing where I was like, I don't know. I, I did not have a plan for it. I mean, you know, I think it's pretty evident. I still don't have a plan for it. <laughs> well, it's evolved. It's evolved from the Tumblr Q&A to now focusing on listener submitted voicemails for people yeah. who have not heard the show are there any notable voicemails that you've gotten that stick out in recent memory well i i think the so just to give a flavor so it's it's truly every episode of the podcast is like now we do two questions that are of the yo is this racist variety and we basically i break this our uh, voicemails down into um three categories i think hmm. uh one is like uh, a white person who is sort of tattling on a coworker or a family member. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that is the, uh, you kind of throw that into a, like, do you want a cookie variety? <laughs> um, and, and, and so it is that like, like liberal white person who just wants to be like noticed, right. Uh, for not being racist, mm-hmm. which is sort of like fine, but it is, <laughs> still a little not annoying but mm. there's nothing that much to say about it other than sort of a light toasting of mm. of them uh and then we have uh people who are like actively in a fight 
Um, and like people who don't actually understand like that there, I said three categories was probably more. In fact, there's going to be more, um, <laughs> but like, like people who are like angry and don't understand this is like a voicemail box and not a hotline. Sure. Um, sure. <laughs> so there's that. And then, uh, the other category is sort of, um, very exhausted people of color and mm. i know it feels a little bit like they're also tattling but it's more of like a commiseration often they're not asking for whether this is racist but just like what the fuck do i do right. with this situation and then there's just the idiot white people um, my favorite one of that is can i can i just every I, every two weeks or so i, I mm-hmm. think on average I think there's less of it now. It's sort of this like, well, can I say the N word if I'm rapping? Oh boy. Yeah. What a <laughs> level shit where I'm like, well, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> well, I feel like, you know, as someone in your position, I feel like talking about racism on the internet is one way or another going to lead to backlash. Was there a lot of friction when you first released the podcast? And do you feel like there's friction now? There was not a ton of friction. Mm. I mean, there is because it's an anonymous mailbox. So there are like just racists that will call in every now and again. I do think that the like general culture has kept, has caught up to sort of the point of view of yo, is this racist um, in the last couple of years? Because mm. when it started, I will say, you know, there was a lot of like, you're being oversensitive. What are you talking about? And it's like, well, you could arguably... From I mean, from many people's perspective, say it's, quote, oversensitive, but mm-hmm. I'm not wrong. <laughs> like, because <laughs> the, the reality is, it's like, look, we live in a racist country. It's built mm-hmm. on fucking slavery and stealing land. And like, yeah. So like at its heart, most shit is on some level built on racism. Mm-hmm. Um that's why Yosis Racist can exist as a bit. But like getting mad at that fact, it's not like I created it. Like <laughs> deal with the racists if you think like I'm just like I'm factually correct like most of the time, only in in the sense that like it's all kind of racist. So <laughs> so yeah, that that's sort of the the leg I have to stand on, or we have to stand on now that it's a podcast with mm-hmm. me and Tawny. Um did you ever feel any doubt at the start or were you always pretty oh yeah all the time because it was like (laughs) yeah well especially on the early on the blog it was just like oh i don't fucking know Mm -hmm. and then you know there have been times obviously like recently we did an episode where basically after the release of shang chi Mm. you know the uh, conversation has resurfaced about aquafina and her accent and and also some of the things she's wrapped earlier in her career, Mm -hmm. um, you know, issues of cultural appropriation and things like that. Sure. And I definitely probably have been guilty of like burying my head in the sand a little bit about stuff like that, because like, Mm -hmm. I know, I don't know, I'm not like friends with Aquafina. I'm not sure she would know who I am, but Mm -hmm. you know, I'm friend people, my friends are friends with her. I've hung out with her before things like that. So, you know, Probably mostly on a subconscious, like, don't want to rock the boat, don't want to get in trouble with Asian people, which is a thing that happens to me a lot Mm -hmm. um, for being largely too hard on Asian folks Mm -hmm. who I don't like. Yeah. Uh, The Andrew Yangs of the world, (laughs) just the horrible, horrible Asian people. Um, I'm not always in such great standing with the, like, rah-rah Asian community in Mm. Hollywood that... You you are one of the gatekeepers of <laughs> no. That, <laughs> I have, to, I have um, to say to anyone listening, I, I can't confirm that that's true. Um, uh, but no, it, it, like just in the sense of like I I think I'm like often hard on those folks, but then clearly sometimes not hard enough on those folks. Mm-hmm. It's tough, and you know, like like many things too for Yosef's racist. It's also like. I'm a comedy writer. So mm-hmm. have there been times that I like, it's not often that we like just censor ourselves, but there's sometimes where it's like, God, this is too much to like unpack and our own personal relationships get like difficult in here. But also I've done stuff in the past without thinking that's gotten me, I'm sure in trouble or things that I haven't even known about. Well, speaking of that, as the show has grown, in terms of its audience and and as your personal platform has also grown 
the podcast is now independent and people can support it and get bonus content at suboptimalpods.com. <laughs> there, 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 there's did you a have tier. that prepped? I, I did. did you have I did. that prepped? Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, there's there's a tier that reads, for, for support, Andrew will block oh, yes. you, unblock you on Twitter yeah. for $100. It's, yeah. it's obviously a joke, but can you explain the context for people that might not be aware? A couple people have done it. Um, I'm very <laughs> um, into blocking people on Twitter. Yeah. Um, I'm arguably too loose with it because I, I had a time when I was blocking anyone or anything that advertised to me mm-hmm. and that started to get hairy when I started to become friends or acquaintances with people who had stuff like television shows that were being promoted and advertised. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I definitely like had blocked people who I didn't know at the time, but then they were like, the fuck, man, why'd you block me? And I was like, oh, it was probably around the time when your television show came out and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever network promoted it in my feed and I had a policy. <laughs> but also I block just like everyone um, who is remotely, you know, racist or sexist or Mm -hmm. homophobic or transphobic or whatever because like who fucking needs them well in the past in terms of these like uh bad actors in terms of twitter arguments have have you noticed what makes you want to respond to someone online like to engage with someone if they have a particularly bad take so i usually don't i don't reply very often um i I very, in fact, I very rarely reply to anyone unless it's usually someone I know with a specific joke that mm-hmm. I have. But then as far as like getting into it with trolls, I haven't done that in a long time. It used to sort of be my treat mm-hmm. when like a racist would start replying to me. Um, and if I, uh, I would often do it when I was on the exercise bike on my phone and I would give <laughs> myself an hour to just like, you know, basically my strategy is play dumb and try to get them bait them into saying more and more racist shit sure um my my the record probably and the easiest by far is like this like libertarian guy that came in with just kind of some i'm just sayings and Mm -hmm. um managed to get him to say well it's probably because black people have lower iqs in like four tweets (laughs) and i was like yeah you're fucking racist you piece of shit and i knew it from the second you were doing libertarian shit oh my god but that was also like i don't don't know it's a fish in a barrel and probably bad for my soul on some level Mm. um so no i don't i don't like um engage very often Partially, that's because actually early in the Yosis Racist days, someone wrote in, because I think I was engaging more. Um, two things, actually. One rule on Yosis Racist is, like, this is not a dialogue. Like, we do not do follow-ups. So we very, very, I think in the years I've done it, like, two or three times we've done a follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, I'm not interested in talking to people mm-hmm. about this stuff. Like, you know, you can comment all you want about the things i said but like i'm not engaging with you typically and that's because uh, early on someone actually just anonymously wrote in to the blog and was like hey you don't have to like keep replying to these people like mm. if you don't they're just racists like yelling into the void mm-hmm. so yeah so that's that's basically the the thing about my new rule is like i i'll uh, reply to people for my own entertainment but mm-hmm. it's not about changing their minds or like winning the argument like in, if anything i recognize that by replying i've i'm losing the argument <laughs> as a general philosophy now then do you do you believe in muting or blocking people or quote tweeting and calling out bad behavior online oh i just block them I'm just I'm just out there blocking all the time. The quote tweet thing, I I never quote tweet anyone who I disagree with. Mm-hmm. I in yeah. fact often even people I agree with, I'm just like it's I I'm a screenshot. I'm a screenshot and post person. Mm-hmm. Cuz like, I don't know. The quote tweeting is like such a it feels like exactly playing into their hands. Like it's mm-hmm. largely how Donald Trump operated when he was on Twitter. It's like, "Can you believe this guy?" And it's like, "Yes." <laughs> yes, I can believe this guy. That might be the other thing, actually, about my white friends that I found it particularly tedious with trolls in general. There mm-hmm. is this air of, like, can you believe how racist this guy is? And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yes, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can. Very much so. Well, on that topic, concerning, like, 2016, 
I was in a, a sketch comedy group at the time during the 2016 oh. election. <laughs> and I remember afterwards, like the tone changed, at least for me. Like I didn't mm-hmm. find anything funny for a while after that. And mm-hmm. that part of that still lingers with me today. Was there a shift at all in the tone of the show or a change at all during that time? Um, it was probably like leading up to it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, I mean, there is a little bit of like, I told you so in there, I'm sure in those post-election days and a little bit of like, you know, my own contrition. It was like, even I, I, I think I was like, I was a little insulated and am a little insulated from like the worst effects of any conservative government. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, as far as like the tone of that stuff goes, that is largely the the kind of sick, sad, depressing part about Yo, is this racist is our numbers like tend to do well, tend to spike sometimes even mm-hmm. when bad shit has happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes doing comedy hard, um, obviously, because it's not funny a lot mm-hmm. of the times. Um, but, you know, that is the other part of our show is like it isn't just a comedy show. Uh, in fact, you know, you, you, you produced some episodes that mm-hmm. I'm sure were like, yeah, sometimes this shit is not that funny. And like part of the what is there for us is, I guess, the ability to like speak freely and, and speak how we want to. So, yeah, it, it's did the tone change. I mean, it must have. But that's sort of luckily or not like what Yosis Racist is allowed to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This shit could be funny. <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> well, well, do you think do you think the onus is on I don't want to say people of color, but do you think the onus is on people who know it's racist to inform other people when they're being racist? Mm. I would say not. It, it's it's a Sisyphean task, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's endless. So is it your responsibility? On some level, sometimes I guess. But is it, like, your duty? Hmm. And the answer to that is, like, no. Like, it it will never end. If you make it your duty, you will never be able to accomplish anything. That's honestly one of the um, tools of racism, right? Of white supremacy. It, like, makes it so that you can, like, sort of fight it all day long and never accomplish anything else. Mm -hmm. Or live your life. You know, I would say it is a do-what-you-can sort of thing. Sometimes people don't do enough, but, like, what do I know about their fucking lives? Like, there's definitely, like, moments when it feels like you have to do it or you can't take it anymore. But sometimes, like, you just need the the space to not be that guy, that mm-hmm. person. Um, I mean, that's, like, one of the things I've said about um, Yosef's Racist, honestly. It's, like, one thing I like about it is that... I don't have to always be the that's fucked up sort of dude. I can like just be like, hey, I'm not on the clock right now. <laughs> like, I'm not dealing with this. Like, mm-hmm. if you want to get my take on it, you'll hear about it on a podcast. Like, I can do it once a week. Speaking of your relationship with the show and its listeners, mm-hmm. uh, are because of the political nature of the show, are you able to separate criticisms about the show versus criticisms about your political ideology or what's being said? Yes, because I think I have a, this is like the, like, I guess like Gen X of me, like I'm, I'm significantly older than you are, but like I'm a old millennial Mm. young Gen X or whatever person. I was born in 1980. Um, but I also got the internet really early. So my brain is like internet warped the way yours is. Um, But I think I just have enough of that old person, that like healthy part of the boomer mentality, which is that like online isn't real. Mm-hmm. Like I probably mm-hmm. think that to a higher degree than most people your age do. Mm. Like I know it's real, but there is a part where I'm not totally real. Not that I say things that are false, but I, unlike I think a lot of folks, I haven't put all of myself on the internet. You know, I, I wasn't young enough to have my childhood documented on the internet. Um, and then I quick, not quickly, but relatively quickly um, got to be a person that like makes um, writing and uh, like takes on the internet as opposed to like putting out truly myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I am sort of maybe more than a lot of folks. And again, I, I think it's just because I'm an old person, like able to separate 
what I'm saying and what I've written and said on the internet from like who I am fundamentally. And the other part of that is it's like, yeah, I know I'm fucking wrong a lot of the times. <laughs> like I, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I, and this might be a personality trait that has served me ill other times, but like, I just don't feel a need to be right all the time. Um, like I'm like, yeah, I'm usually wrong. And like, I, I do genuinely think sort of the true measure of a person is not like, you know, not if they said something racist or did something wrong, but like how hard they dig in their heels after someone tells them. And it's like, yeah, usually I'm wrong. I'm wrong about, you know, the, the most evident stuff is the stuff that I don't have personal experience with. So whether it's like um, gender issues or LGBTQ trans type issues, like mm-hmm. I'm conversant in a lot of that stuff, but I, I'm sure I fuck up constantly. Like I know mm-hmm. I do. Um, but also, I, I don't think I'm the expert or my old ways are paramount. I'm like, yeah, I'm, mm. I'm wrong. I'm wrong all the time. I don't mean to Nixon frost you. Oh, yeah. But in terms of being wrong, I feel like, like a lot of uh, shows like the Colbert or John Oliver show, there's the label of it as a comedy show. And like, yes, we're wrong. It's a comedy show. It's We're here to entertain. But then there's also, like you said earlier, that you were confident in being correct about some of your political takes, at least. Like, yeah, yeah. What's well, obviously the, racist. The stuff on, on race, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is easier. Yeah. Do you consider yours as racist? Do you want people to consider it more as a comedy show or more as a, I guess, sociopolitical, here's what's happening? Jesus Christ, dude. Um, <laughs> I don't mean know. to make this incredibly yeah. unpleasant. I'm, I'm Neither? Just, I, no, I don't know. Uh, what is it? I mean, probably because it isn't a comedy show in that it is simply like two comedy people talking about things that are serious often, mm. but we are not like particularly looking or requiring comedy so i guess it's not a comedy show it's just like the world's dumbest socio-political show (laughs) (laughs) but again we're we're not smart particularly or trained particularly and yet basically we're right almost all the time so like i don't know draw your own conclusions about what that says about the power of perspective or like what it is that we actually bring to the table um It is the fish in the barrel of it, right? Again, racist country, white supremacist underpinnings to everything. So, like, yeah, it's always there. Mm. Do you think it's possible to change someone's opinion online? I'm sure it's possible. I don't particularly see the value of it. That is actually a thing that has happened on Yoza's Racist a lot. It's like Mm. when people are like, you're just, you know, this whole like idea of like call out culture or whatever being damaging. Like you're never going to change someone's mind. It's only going to, it's only going to make them dig in their heels. And I think that's the wrong lens to look at it. Like, of course, who gives a shit about the fucking bigot? The the point of doing the, you know, or sorry, not probably the point for everyone, but the point for me, the value of it, is being part of the community that lends a voice to saying this type of thought is not welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, racism's obvious or, or mostly what I'm talking about. But, I mean, I think that's, it's sort of the inverse of, like, what a hate crime is, right? Like, mm-hmm. The, the reason hate crimes are, you know, an, an additional crime, um, bias crime, um, you know, the, the libertarian idiots would say, oh, it's like a thought crime. You could, what difference does it make? Murder is murder or an assault is assault, whether you do it for money or you do it for hate. And the problem is it's like there are more victims to a bias crime than simply mm. the person receiving, uh, you know, whatever direct impact. It is a community that is mm. being threatened. It is, you know, white supremacy reinforcing itself and like spreading terror. It's the tools of terrorism. So like that is that is why I think the value of like to the extent that it matters, like calling someone out, calling a bigot out. It's not to change their minds. Like I think that is like maybe this viewpoint that's like mm. it's like this sort of narcissistic thing of like, oh, this is this is about them. It's not. It's about like the community. It's about like seeing it's about someone from a the the party that could be um harmed by this bigot maybe not directly but like just knowing that there are being there are voices on that are in support and and that i think is the actual value of it that i think like you know the idea of 
quote, cancel culture is more that. Like, you're not, we're not actually canceling anyone. Like, no one is going to jail. No one's, literally, their shows and things are not being canceled. It's that the community says, hey, this shit is not acceptable. Often, it goes back to being acceptable, by the way. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the value of it. Because mm-hmm. you see it on the other side, right? Like, the, like when, when the racists have an axe to grind, they make sure to, to pile on. And it's like, yeah. And it's just everyone voting with their voice. And, like, sure, is it, like, unpleasant? Can it be unfair? It can be. But on the balance, I just think it's, it's a new and ultimately good tool because like all the all the naysayers against it it's like oh it'll like make people less i don't know like afraid to take risks and it's like yeah it's just they should be afraid to take to say shit that is damaging Mm -hmm. that's a good thing in my opinion so i don't know like it's really asking people to like second guess their their thoughts is like not so bad considering like the amount of psychic you know work that all the bigotry creates. So it's like, yeah, white people having to think about white people or any, you know, person that was going to perpetrate a bigotry, like having to think about that. That's what like people of color or marginalized folks go through all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the same thing of like, do you think it's worth it? Do you think it's our responsibility to say stuff? That's the same amount of like processing power that gets just frittered away by racism that now racists are having to deal with. And it's mm-hmm. like, and they don't like it. Surprise, surprise. But fuck them. The, <laughs> the last thing that I want to ask is that, like, do you consider yourself a confrontational person in real life? I can be. I find it's, like, not as good mainly because, like, like I'm not as good when my temper gets out of control. Mm. But, like, my type of confrontation is, like, being really mad when people try to cut, like, getting off an airplane and things like that. <laughs> That was our interview with Andrew T. You can find him on Twitter at Andrew T. His podcast, Yo, Is This Racist, is available on suboptimalpods.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Act 3. The Marketplace of Angry, Misguided Ideas. I want to start this off with a confession. Earlier this year, I was still spending most of my time indoors as a result of the pandemic and... During that time, I was playing a lot of the game League of Legends. If you don't know, in League of Legends, you're put in a team of five real people and you compete against another team of five real people. It seems innocent enough until you realize there's a chat feature. Not only can you type messages to the people on your team, but you can type messages to all ten people in the game. I would love to sit here and pretend that I would not respond if another player, ostensibly a 12-year-old considering the contents of their message and their edgy username, said something to me. I would love to do that. But this podcast does not support the idea of perjury, so... Yeah, I argued... (laughs) with a lot of 12-year-olds. In my darkest hour, I noticed one of these players had the letters YT in their name, which usually meant that they had a YouTube channel under the same username, and they were typing a lot of unhelpful, needlessly argumentative stuff. So not only did I respond and argued with them in the game... Afterwards, I found their YouTube channel, and I disliked all four of their videos. This pattern would continue. And if I can take a moment here to come to my defense while I'm committing character assassination of myself, two things. One, I would never start anything, and two, this was a new behavior that started this past year, which confused me too. To resume the story, I was regularly arguing with these preteens, and at one point my mental compass was so foggy and I was so absorbed into these interactions, I started thinking, well, clearly if they're typing, their parents have failed them. Their teachers have failed them because they think their words won't have consequences. And so it is my moral responsibility, in fact, my benevolence, to spend my time teaching them that that's not the case. So if you can imagine, I was using all my brain power as an adult coming up with witty responses. I was using my English degree the creativity I cultivated in my writing seminars to argue with these children who in reality have probably just come home from school and are playing on their family computer. This was a long-winded and extremely uncharismatic introduction to this week's topic, but I wanted to explain that I'm not immune to online arguments. I don't think anyone is. I think everyone has something that might get under their skin. So let's talk about it. Is it possible to change someone's opinion online? 
Turns out, it's pretty difficult. I'm going to talk about a specific study in a second, but most of them point to a similar idea. Even when human beings are shown that their beliefs are provably false, they still tend to cling on to those beliefs. In 1980, there was a Stanford study where students were given information about firefighters, one of whom was named Frank. The first group of students was told that Frank took a risk assessment test and that he preferred playing things safe. The second group of students was told that Frank preferred taking risks, and he had been put on report by his supervisors several times. But halfway through the study, researchers told the students that the information they'd be given on Frank was entirely made up. However, when asked how they thought Frank would respond in an emergency, the first group still answered that he played safe, and the second group still answered that he'd take a risk. Even after the evidence for their beliefs had been refuted, people didn't change those beliefs. Why are humans like this? Well, like a lot of behaviors, it's helpful in evolution. Basically, if you share the same belief with someone else, you're more likely to trust them. Even if that belief is a little ridiculous, like there's witches in the next town, or hey, Emily in Paris is a good show. It's how people form trust with one another, and eventually with their collective. And it's a double-sided sword because disavowing one of these beliefs could cost you your community. I'm reminded of the documentary Behind the Curve on Netflix, which is about the false belief that the earth is flat. And I want to say, I get it. You sign up for one idea and suddenly you have common ground with a lot of people. You can make new friends. Speaking from experience, it's arguably less painful than taking an improv class. The point is that connection from an evolutionary standpoint is more valuable than the truth. And that's reflected online on Twitter. In 2014, a study from Penn State showed that users are more willing to share and communicate with their ideological friends rather than foes. People stay within their collective. Plus, that study concluded that Twitter, though it has potential, is not currently a great place if you want to facilitate cross-party agreements. So let's answer the question, do I think it's possible to change someone's opinion online? I'll give you the optimistic answer first. A 2016 study from Cornell showed that 30% of the people on the subreddit changed my view did, in fact, change their view. Now I'll give you the pessimistic answer. Hell no! Though it might be possible, though there are strategies, the success rate is low. Plus, with the rise of ever more realistic social media bots, you might be wasting your time and not even talking to a real person. And here's the heartbreaking part. People want to have these difficult conversations. A 2021 study from the University of Washington showed just that. The lead author, Amanda Bogan, said, quote, Despite the fact that online spaces are often described as toxic and polarizing, what stood out to me is that people, surprisingly, want to have difficult conversations online. So... Here's why I think that culturally it's tough for us to do. And I'll speak from my experience in the U.S. We're obsessed with winning and losing. Owning the libs. Ratioing someone on Twitter. People don't want to lose publicly, online. And often in online arguments, it seems like if you concede, if you admit you were wrong about even a tiny detail, it's going to lead to a total loss. It's going to show that you were wrong about your entire belief system. So what do you do? You just don't admit you're wrong at all even when it's been proven. Not only that, a New Yorker article by Elizabeth Colbert discussed how we get a hit of dopamine when sticking to our guns, even when we know we're wrong. It feels good. So when I was arguing with 12-year-olds on League of Legends, we weren't having a conversation. We were just trying to win or lose. Later, I realized I wasn't even mad at them. I was mad about a lot of other things. Things from annoyances in my own life to the ongoing pandemic needlessly elongated by people who don't want to change their false beliefs, people who want to stay within their collective. That's the conversation I wanted to have. But what I've learned is that if I'm searching for it online, it's not the right place. Did we do it, team? Episode two in the books? This has been Millennial Shelter. I'm your host, Yusem Liu. Before we go, I want to tell you a funny story. First of all, thank you for all the ratings and reviews. Secondly, my parents accidentally rated the show one star on Apple Podcasts. I was on the phone with them, and my mom told me that they liked it and they thought the show sounded very professional. Then they told me that my dad thought, understandably, you have to touch each star individually to get all five to light up. Then, after touching the first one, the review was recorded. I suppose, at least, it's good to know who your haters are. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps a lot. Or you can mention the show to a friend if they ask what you've been listening to. 
You can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at M underscore shelter pod. Episodes are going to come out as soon as they're finished, and I'll keep you updated there. Our art was done by Jaya Nicely, whose website you can find in the episode description. Our music was mixed by Wade Ryan, and you can listen to his work on Spotify under the artist Gold Sedan. All sources used for this episode can be found in the episode description. Special thanks to Dana, Andrew, Beth, and everyone listening for making the show possible. Please take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.